my fellow plebs, River is setting a new standard in Bitcoin. At river.com, you'll pay zero fees when you dollar cost average. Truly the best way to build your Bitcoin wallet. All Bitcoin at River is held in secure cold storage with 100% full reserves. There's no need to wonder what's happening behind the scenes. Your Bitcoin is your Bitcoin to withdraw at any time. Additionally, River lets you make Bitcoin payments via the Lightning Network, offers a Lightning integration for developers, and allows you to mine Bitcoin directly to your River account. River has a level of service that is unheard of in this industry, including phone support, private client advisors, and the ability to designate beneficiaries to inherit your Bitcoin wealth. River has become the premium name in Bitcoin that anyone can easily access. Sure, you have a place to buy Bitcoin, but have you tried River? See and feel the difference at river.com and the River iOS app, the preferred partner of Bitcoin Magazine. My fellow plebs, today's podcast is also brought to you by Moon Mortgage. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage makes it possible to materialize your assets into real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investments in owner-occupied property. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will also be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.com today to register and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. Today's episode is brought to you by Gordon Law Group. If you've tried to do Bitcoin taxes yourself, you know how complicated it is. You can spend hours and hours going through your transactions and researching tax forms and you're still not sure if it's right or if the IRS will come after you. Or maybe you're so intimidated by Bitcoin taxes that you don't even know where to start. Gordon Law Group can help. Ditch the spreadsheets and feel confident with a bulletproof Bitcoin tax return. They can help with IRS payment plans and they also provide a full range of legal and accounting services for Bitcoin and digital asset startups. Get your taxes done right the first time with the original Bitcoin and digital asset tax pros. Go to gordonlawltd.com forward slash BTC. As a bonus, they'll send you the ultimate Bitcoin tax guide for free. That's gordonlawltd.com forward slash BTC. Hey, how's it going, Grant? It's going well. How are you doing? Doing well, man. Doing well. Let's jump into let's jump into the meat of the spaces. So Yale, who's a speaker here, who just came on as a, a visiting fellow for Bitcoin Policy Institute, he's a deputy director over the Consumer Choice Center. He recently published a piece on BPI's website called "The Silent March of Bitcoin Policies Across U.S. States." So I, you know, tagged this at the top of the space here. If you haven't read it, don't read it now because we're going to talk about it, you know, read it after. Um, it's fantastic. It, it's from my perspective, and obviously I'm biased here because we published it. You know, it's the most comprehensive overview of, you know, Bitcoin specific state policy that, that I've seen. So I'm super proud that we were able to publish it. Yale, before we get into kind of the, the meat of, do you want to give us an overview of this piece? Maybe why you felt compelled to write it and uh, really talk about anything else you want to frame this? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Grant. Well, i I guess the NIM has been unveiled. So yeah, I'm Yael. I focus on 
consumer choice policies uh, sort of in the States and uh, globally as well. Bitcoin is obviously of a, of a very important note. And there's been so much pressure at the federal level to deal with Bitcoin and generally with crypto. And we have seen a, a kind of monopolistic relationship between many centralized coin companies, various lobbying groups. And there's been a lot of oxygen that's taken up in the room by questions about securities and commodities and what should be this and stable coins. And there really isn't any nuts and bolts rules for how Bitcoin could work and how people can access Bitcoin. But we are seeing that a lot at the state level. And that's what kind of pushed me to start researching this and working on it. So there, there are three prime areas that, you know, basically we've outlined of how Bitcoin is so-called regulated. And when I say Bitcoin is regulated, I don't mean Bitcoin, the protocol itself. I only mean the people and the institutions that touch Bitcoin. So we have exchange. This is your, your fiat on and off ramps, your money transmitter licenses, KYC, AML rules. Everybody's very familiar with all of that. Second is energy which we've seen increasingly many more bills very positive about this one. There have been some negative ones in the past, but something that is very active. And then we have taxation. And a lot of the waters are being muddied around this right now. Uh, I would say overall, looking at many of the states, we obviously have the big states like New York. We have states like Illinois or California, where things are a bit more wary. We're not really sure how it's going to go, perhaps in one area, whether it be in hashing or mining, things have been restricted. But I would say generally in many of the other states, things have been fairly open. Many different caveats to add to that. And any of the entrepreneurs in the space who've tried to start businesses or who are actively trying to open bank accounts or keep their bank accounts open, there's all kinds of issues there. But I'd say I'm generally very hopeful. We do have some outliers in terms of how bad they are. We've got some actors who are very present in many of these debates that could sway things one way or another. Um, but I do think it's going to take education on the part of BPI. It's going to take some lobbying on the part of uh, groups like ours or many others in the space. And it's going to take a lot of voices of both plebs and entrepreneurs because there are, are many different avenues to take. It is true. It is not that Bitcoiners have to care about the state, but the state definitely cares about Bitcoin. And we just want to be sure to shape it in the right way. So hopefully that's a good intro. That was awesome. Thank you so much. And speaking of intros, I want to go ahead and introduce everybody else on this panel. You know what? Let's start with Dan. We'll go to Sam and then we'll end with Kyle. If you guys just want to you know, tell us your name, a little bit about yourself, about your work, and maybe some of the ways that you all interact with uh, some of the pieces on this at a, at a state level. Thanks, Grant. Thanks, everybody, for having me today. Pleasure to be here. I'm Dan Spooler, a longtime Bitcoiner. I'm, I'm from North Carolina. I'm in between North Carolina and Washington, D.C. these days, but I got my start actually back in 2012, late 2012, one of the earlier supporters and attendants at the Triangle Bitcoin Meetup Group in Raleigh. And uh, it was a hobby. At my day job, I worked for the state government, primarily the Commerce Department and the Banking Commissioner's Office. But we put on a series of Bitcoin conferences in Raleigh in 2014, called it Cryptolana, which was a you know, portmanteau of cryptocurrency and Carolina. That's before the term, I guess, crypto became kind of a tinged word. Um, but it was a Bitcoin conference. We did another one in Charlotte a year later. And I really started to get more interested in it professionally. 
And we'll get into that in a little bit, but I moved up to Washington, D.C. in 2016 to build out a trade association, the Digital Chamber. I did that for four years, second hire there with Jason Brett and Perry Ann. I migrated over to the Blockchain Association, where I'm at now, also in D.C. Uh, and anyway, friend of the Bitcoin Magazine, long-time you know, contacts with David Bailey. He came to my first Bitcoin conference way back when it was Why Bitcoin Magazine. And it's 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 been a long time, but I think there's been a lot of progress made over the last, what, 10 years now. But we still have a lot of work to do, and hopefully we'll be able to share some ideas and best practices today. Yeah, the Why Bitcoin days are crazy. <laughs> I still have a copy. That's awesome. We still got copies of those in the, you know, is that Bitcoin mag, they're the earliest, you know, copies in the office. And yeah, crazy to see one, how far things have come. And two, on the flip side, how many things have actually in some ways stayed the same, you know, even some of the talking points, like some of the the terms or phrases that people use are almost exactly the same. It's kind of, kind of remarkable. I, I think sometimes things can feel like they move so quickly in the space. And then on the other hand, you look back, you know, a decade ago and, and yeah, it's, it's really fascinating to see some things have stayed very much the same, but I want to kick it over to Sam. Oh, what's up everybody. My name is Sam Callahan. I'm the lead analyst at Swan Bitcoin and I've been there for about two years now. And, you know, it's, it's just been a roller coaster trying to navigate the regulatory environment as a Bitcoin startup. It's just something that we have to deal with as an industry. And Swan hasn't been immune to that. We've, we've been debanked by Citibank recently, just made, made the Wall Street Journal. Corey kind of explained how not only was Swan debanked from Citibank without any kind of notification, but also his personal bank account was debanked as well without any notification or reasoning. And so we, we deal with this all the time. And we've also recently, um, you know, our custodial partner lost the money transmitter license in Texas and we've lost access to customers in South Dakota just because of these changes in, in regulations at the state level. And we've really been able to navigate those challenges well. And that's a testament to our leadership and our, our partners that we, we partner with, which is why we haven't run into a lot of problems. But it, it's a challenging environment for any kind of business in Bitcoin because there's a lot of frictional costs of determining how or even whether like certain obligations apply combined with ongoing compliance costs. And it can just be a barrier of entry for, to bootstrap these Bitcoin companies with these compliance costs. And they change on us all the time. And so it, it's difficult, but you know, it's, like I said, it's a testament to our leadership, like being on the ball with this stuff. And we've, we try to get more involved with lobbying groups in Washington, D.C. to advocate for our industry. And so, yeah, happy to be here. Awesome. Hey, um, yeah, sorry, Grant. You're good. You're good. I was just going to say, yeah, we'll, we'll touch on the money transfer license stuff even more. So we'll kick that over to you again, Sam, in a moment. But uh, yeah, Kyle, go for it. Hey, guys, thanks for having me. Kyle Schnapps. I'm director of public policy at Foundry. Foundry is a, a company based in western New York that we have uh, one of the larger mining pools, mostly focusing in North America. And we're also miners and have a, a whole bunch of different business streams that focus on empowering decentralized infrastructure that so that places that are like Rochester that have long been an underserved can now, you know, build businesses and bring jobs to their communities through this new decentralized economy that we're all trying to build. Also a co-founder of BTC Vets, which is an organization that that is comprised of um 
veterans, you know, U.S. military veterans, former intelligence folks, former foreign service officers from State Department, first responders across the nation who all want to advocate for Bitcoin in D.C. We're hoping that this group of people will be listened to in a different way than you know, than folks who don't have that background, because we can speak to national security and the importance of, of Bitcoin and proof of work in that framing. That being said, work, work, I spent the first year and a half of my life in this industry uh, fighting the Bitcoin moratorium in New York. And I've worked closely with, with Dan and, and we bonded with, with Sam and Wyoming over our mutual skepticism over World Bank. So over the World Bank. So I'm happy to be here. Yeah, skepticism of the World Bank. I think that's gonna that's gonna play well, you know, on on, on this space. But maybe a space for another. Look, we're 15 minutes in this space. We've got you know a behemoth of, of a topic topic to get through. I'll say this, right? If you've got you know if you can have Twitter open on your phone or the space open on your phone, and you'd like to you know click on the article link. They're going to follow this pretty linearly. It might be helpful for you all to. Uh, you know, follow along visually. If you got your computer in front of you, or you got your phone in front of you, and you'd like to just kind of keep tabs that way, you know, the bolded phrases on the article will be pretty helpful. Just as a rundown of what we're going to cover here, and Yale, you know, gave a pretty great overview. We're going to start with money transmitter licenses, you know, talk about those in states. Uh, look, might seem kind of boring on its face, but, you know, to Sam's point, this is like something that so many Bitcoin startups have to deal with. And many of them are literally like unable to transact in certain states because of some of these owners requirements, right? So we'll go from MTLs. We'll talk about a couple of the different actors in the space, you know, the Conference of State Bank Supervisors, the Uniform Law Commission. You might've heard of them recently because of this bill that was you know, initially passed in South Dakota, you know, attempting to buy central bank digital currencies as money and say Bitcoin is not money, you know, we'll touch on that here because I think there's been a lot of FUD that's been spread about that bill, which, by the way, did get vetoed, you know, by the governor of South Dakota, but uh, would definitely like to clarify some things there. We're going to talk about regulatory sandboxes, no action letters. We're going to get into proof of work and the energy debate on a state-by-state level because, you know, it's it's past the point of heating up. All those battles are, are here, and, and Kyle alluded to one of the big battles, you know, that we faced in, in New York get into taxation, talk about some, you know, friends and enemies, and then we'll wrap up. So the way I'm going to approach this is, is this, because there's so many topics, um, I'm going to just, you know, lay the groundwork for each of these, throw it over to, to Yale, and he can, you know, give an overview, give his kind of basic take here. And then what I'd love from, you know, Dan, Sam, Kyle, from you all is like, if you can add some color from, you know, your experience with your companies, your organizations, don't feel the need to like, comment on all of these, right? If they don't specifically apply to you, or, or you know, you still have much to say, that's totally fine. But I think that this space can offer a cool mix of the policy wonk side of things. And then also the, the actual, like, business side of things, like how this affects small businesses, startups, and then larger organizations that are, you know, transacting with, with Bitcoin specifically. Yeah. Let's start with money transmitter licenses. Again, we'll use, you know, MTL for short, but you know, these MTLs are state by state. They determine, depending on, you know, if a state says that like transacting with Bitcoin in a certain way requires a money transmitter license, right? This could be something that a company has to apply for in every single state that they do business in. So Yale, do you want to give us, you know, just an overview of these money transmitter licenses, like why they're so important, 
And then maybe we can fill in with, you know, color on how they affect like specific Bitcoin businesses in the space. Yeah, absolutely. And there's going to be a lot more education on these licenses with specifically all the, the bank runs and failures and impending doom that we have. So there's going to be a lot of talk about different bank licenses and, and all the rest. So for the money transmitter license, it's essentially a state right to legally offer any kind of services to residents in a state that has to do with transmitting money. Now, there are different ways that this is defined in some areas. They've really tried to unify the law. It's going to depend on your state, but this is your primary vehicle for your KYC, know your customer data collection. It's a way for the state to keep tabs on who is permitting money transmission, so-called, in its state. And it's a way that the state can say, look, we're here to protect you residents, and we will not allow any of these so-called financial firms or brokers to deal with our residents if they don't have this license. Now, there are exceptions. Montana, it shines bright in the sky, big sky country. They do not have a money transmission license. You've probably seen a lot of different institutions that are based there for that reason. There are all kinds of different issues that have come up recently. As was mentioned, South Dakota and Texas, by losing a money transmitter license, you know, it's, it's a very fiat type thing. And it's through the government. However, it means that you, if you're trying to DCA, if you're trying to purchase your, your weekly stock of sats, you weren't able to because the custodian lost that right. And a lot, of the, a lot of times there's not a very clear process for trying to understand that. It's a lot of backroom deals. It's a lot of whatever the banking supervisor wants. So I would just love some color more on the backroom deals and how that's working. And the only other practical thing I'd introduce is that you know we have written a model policy and we are working with state policymakers to figure out a way to actually unify this and to make it more portable. So the idea we kind of came up with was this idea of reciprocity. If you've gone through the process, if you've shown that you're liquid, if you've shown that you have all of this information in one state, you should be able to have your license accepted in others. They've done this with occupational licensing in places like Arizona, which has been very successful, and they're doing it more and more. We'd love to see it applied to this, whether it be in the standard money transmitter license or specific for so-called digital asset firms. So yeah, that, that's the two cents. And I, I really look forward to some of the, the practical experience that some of the folks here have had. My fellow plebs, come celebrate Bitcoin winner in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. As 2023 begins, the broke issue stares head-on into the looming realities of a broken economy, a more broke central bank, and considers how Bitcoiners can share their knowledge, their projects, and their mentalities to remain strong economic nodes throughout the winter. As a global Bitcoin news medium with a mission to accelerate hyper-Bitcoinization, 
Bitcoin Magazine is for all Bitcoiners, the curious, convicted, and the maximalists. Inside Bitcoin Magazine, you will find exclusive interviews and profiles with leading Bitcoiners, actionable insights on the state of the market, breaking news and cultural trends, and powerful photos and artwork from the best artists in the world. Each issue will be shipped safely in a secure box mailer to protect the integrity of each copy. Print magazines, not money. Buy Bitcoin Magazine. And I have, I just want to, maybe kick something off here. I, I'm, I want to start off by saying I'm a longtime foe of the New York State Bit License for a variety of reasons. But it's for personally for me, it started off when Ben Lasky introduced that darn thing in July of 2014. It was three weeks before that conference I had mentioned earlier that I was doing. And the bank that we were using suddenly just debanked us out of the blue. And, it, and this was a North Carolina bank. Well, we got to the conference. And, you know, met a lot of great folks, but I went back to my job. And again, that was in the state government, the Commerce Department, which oversees in, in the budget of the, the North Carolina Banking Commissioner's Office. I did a little research. Come to find out that this was by far, far more strict than it ever needs, needed to be. And the fear was this was going to have tentacles in other states. And you know, here we are 10 years later, and we're, we're, you know, we're seeing the same thing. It's, it's continued to rear its ugly head. And what we decided to do was just through some personal connections at the time. And my then girl, my then girlfriend, my now wife, was a legislative assistant for the state chairman house banking committee in the state legislature. I got wind that the state was in the process of updating their money transmitters laws, which hadn't been updated since 1991. And they were going to begin adding some bit license like provisions to the North Carolina money transmitter law. And I said, all right, well, very few people probably had it. Certainly nobody in the legislature at that time had any inkling of what Bitcoin was. So I went down there and just started talking to people, some state senators, some state house reps, you know, just really on my own time. And over the course of the, in the next two years, we really worked to craft and bake in some exemptions in what had become House Bill 289 that became later became law. And what it did was it updated the improved version of it through the work that we did. Me and several other stakeholders, we improved the state's law, existing laws to include a defined virtual currency term and clarifying, which clarified which use of virtual currencies would trigger licensure under the act. So what we were able to do was we were able to ensure that virtual currency miners, Bitcoin miners, as we like to say, and blockchain software protocols, including smart contract platforms, colored coins, which it's a dated term for people that have been around long enough to know what that is, multi-stick software, non-hosted, non-custodial wallets. We made sure that all of those were baked into the lot that would not require license. So it wasn't perfect, but and it, again, it took about two and a half years for this thing to actually get passed into law and to sign. But the result was a more business-friendly approach that invited companies that were seeking to use Bitcoin or virtual currencies, as as is codified, to bring them to North Carolina to do business. And what New York State did was quite the opposite. And I fear now that that's what's happening in New Jersey, which is actually even more harsh than the bit license, and then in Illinois. And I know Sam and, and you know, you know, you're specializing in a lot of these state-by-state issues. But just from a historical standpoint, you know, this bit license is the gift that keeps on giving. And it's not the kind of gift you want to receive. Um, I, I, I'm hopeful, though, that, and again, this is going to be a state issue. This is not the federal side can't solve all the problems. And I know that was a little long winded, but I just I think it's important for everybody to know that this is a 
been in the process for a while. And I think now that the industry has gotten so much more attention and credibility and skill, scope over the last, you know, nine, 10 years, the forces that be are going to even become more strict. And as an industry, that's why we need to have the best and the brightest helping craft these policies. Dan, as a fellow Carolina boy, I thank you for your service. <laughs> no problem. I also despise the bit license. And to the title of this room, you know, I think states can just kill themselves from Bitcoin. And I think the bit license proves that. I know Kyle's worked a lot in New York. And I have to say, Ben Losky, I mean, he made that bit license. And then he just went over to the private sector afterwards to teach people <laughs> how to work around the bit license. I mean, it's I like crony capitalism. I mean, it's insane. But, you know, I think it speaks to, from Swan's perspective, how quickly these things can turn without much notification as well. So in terms of the Texas news, I mean, basically it became more stringent, the requirements to obtain an EL license after FTX collapse. After FTX collapsed, suddenly the Department of Banking in Texas, they wanted to review every single one in the industry and then became stricter on who could receive these MTLs. And that's when our custodial partner received a temporary kind of suspension of their license. And so then we were kind of stuck because we're like, okay, we have to figure out a new custodial partner. But we had no notification. This was just done from the top down. And it was very opaque in terms of what requirements were needed. And so right now, like we're in this spot where like, okay, well, we don't want to just willy nilly partner up with some random custodian partner just because they have a license. We want to build long term relationships with the right partners. And so even though, you know, it might be painful in the short term for some of our clients, specifically in Texas, who we want to serve, who we have been serving diligently for, they have to wait to kind of access our services now until we find the, the long-term partnerships that are right for us. So that's just like an example of some of the hurdles that Bitcoin companies have to go through at a state-by-state -state level. I think I'll just, just add from the, the, the New York bid license point of view, just like zooming out a little bit of, of what the actual effect is, or one of the actual effects is, is that, you know, you, you basically ended up with, you know, this process whereby it costs hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions to get to obtain a bid license. It takes years of, of going through the application process. And so you end up basically grandfathering in a few, you know, huge companies that are able to obtain this the, a bit license, and it screws over the little guy that, or the the medium sized business over that owner that maybe wants to get involved in in Bitcoin in some way, but now is excluded. And I think that's that's really important. It's something we try to convey to policymakers, you know, through on the energy side of things when we're fighting the moratorium bill, which is you know New York may try to claim that it's it's leading the way. But in fact, it's it's kind of grandfathering in a few companies and then it is preventing new businesses and new jobs from from coming to the state. And I think that's one of the, the most pernicious aspects of the bit license is that it it creates this 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 kind of pseudo security system whereby if you have a bit license, somehow you are protected, but it then prevents any other folks from coming in and trying to get involved in the space. Yeah, I think, you know, one, one, of my core, one of my core issues with, you know, the New Jersey bill that, that's being worked on is, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't really, doesn't really stop the next FTX, right? And I think that's, that's what a lot of these licenses 
are, are trying to do, right? They're trying to, you know, protect consumers. They're trying to make sure that all these companies have, you know, ha- have everything in place, essentially, that, you know, consumers can't just be rugged, you know, on a on moment's notice. And I think in their pursuit to do that, they, you know, have all these unintended consequences that we're talking about or potentially intended, right, by driving business competition out of their states. And then the reality is, like, the, the really bad things that they're trying to stop, I, I, I don't know if these licenses necessarily, like, have the power to to protect as much as uh, you know these politicians would like to think so that that's really what what i'll say on here dan did you have more to add well i think it was kyle's point was that you know it based on just the sheer costs the requirements for the licensures the surety bonds the, the you name it and then the legal fees it all but guarantees a moat around a lot of the incumbent players that had a leg up from the get-go and it, it's not just exchanges either i mean we're talking about you can all the way down to Bitcoin ATMs, all the way up to to anyone that deals with something that would require a money transmitter license. And ultimately, they'll, they'll, these states, the ones that the usual suspects, I mean, I'll bring up New Jersey again and Illinois, but it's going to create an exodus of, of talent and to the, to the benefit of the states that are fairly open and embracing this. And we've seen the states that have embrace this technology, not just MTLs, but, you know, variety of this energy you mentioned earlier, and it's going to continue to almost divide the country into two different sections. And so it's fascinating to see this happen though. And I think in the long run though, these states are going to have to wake up. Otherwise they're going to have a very, very large talent exodus. Yeah. If you're, if you're just joining us, you know, look at the title of the space, can states kill Bitcoin in the U S right now, you know, banks are, are collapsing, coin companies are effectively being, you know, debanked in, in more ways than one. And so there seems like there's this really large, you know, uh, attack vector on the federal level. And so the ultimate purpose of the space is to show that um, the attack vectors exist on, on so many different levels. And there are many attack vectors on the, on the state level. And some of them are really just unsexy, like money transmitter licenses. We just talked about these for 15 minutes. This isn't like, you know, a thing that that's going to get people all riled up necessarily, you know, maybe it will some Bitcoiners, but the reality is like a lot, a lot of this stuff is, is, uh, you know, redlining a, a bill and, and changing a few words, you know, have doing the dirty work, you know, Dan, Kyle, Sam, people like you talking, you know, with, with legislators in a specific state and explaining to them, you know, how this is going to affect people, you know, can, can you all just kind of speak to maybe what this work looks like? Dan, you alluded that the stuff took two and a half years, right? Like on, on the state level, how is that different than what we're seeing at a federal level? Are you more optimistic because of I'm the more opti- state's work? I'm more optimistic now than I was previously, just because the education's got so much better. A, a lot of the part because of like groups like what you're doing. And, and these nonprofit institutes and educational arms uh, that weren't around. And the industry, I think, as a whole, has also gotten a lot more street cred and institutional credibility, if that makes sense, for better or for worse, where it's not just, it's not fringe anymore. And now you have politicians within probably every state at this point, you have at least some elected officials that either accept Bitcoin as campaign contributions or they're Bitcoiners themselves. That's a huge development. So that gives me a lot of hope. You were getting critical mass. And at the federal level, you know, the Congressional Blockchain Caucus, you know, we have a lot of Bitcoiners. There used to be only like two or three. Now we have many. But with as this grows, we there's also big pushes for the antithesis of what Bitcoin stands for, such as you know, CBDCs and other parts that come across as innovation 
that some state level policymakers will say, oh, this is interesting, we can get behind this, but it's really you know, not the way to go. And so I think education is going con- to need to continue. And, and then obviously advocacy too on the lobbying. Yeah, that, that brings us to, you know, further down here, you know, Yale, if, if you want to talk a little bit about, a little bit about the conference of state bank supervisors, if you want to close out with the MTL piece, we can, but you know, now that CBDCs were mentioned, I would really like to get to the uniform law commission. So yeah, I'll let you kind of segue into that. However you'd like. Sure. Kick us off. And for the money transmitter license, I mean, we're talking in specific domestic U.S. terms. It's not confirmed yet, but they're the, the story behind ZK Snacks and Wasabi Wallet. They essentially ran into the same issue in Gibraltar, very strange European country. And the sort of recommendations that they had in order to get their license just became too numerous. And we've kind of seen the fallout in the Bitcoin privacy wars over that. So these things are important more if you want to have a licensed legal entity that services Bitcoin's users in some way. And the banking supervisors of each state, they're the ones who normally give the green check. So this is the Conference of State Bank Supervisors, just a wonderful drinking club, uh, nice affair, great people. (laughs) (laughs) who are essentially in charge of supervising banks right now at this moment. And each of their circumstances are different. In some places, you have a lot of very innovative banking supervisors. In others, you have those like in in California that are great on some issues, terrible in others, as we're seeing today. And there's this organization, this nonprofit, is a sort of meeting club for all of these different banking supervisors. And they have a a project, a registry that's run by this organization that is sort of the onboarding platform when you apply for these money transmitter licenses. It's gotten better in terms of the process. It's still up to the banking supervisors to give the AOK. And this organization is interesting because they they write model legislation to impact how the rules will be written that the state banking supervisors have to follow, which is the strangest conflict of interest basically ever. But that's government. That's how things work. It's why we have a democratic model. And, you know, if it sucks, we're able to to rise up, use advocacy groups and push against it. They've really been the, the force in some of the modernization around money transmission. I think it was Dan who mentioned, you know, upgrading it in North Carolina, which is which is great. And look, we have neo banks. So we have all these different types of banks that exist today. And to have a modernization is important. Unfortunately, we've had just like strange definitional changes on what virtual currencies are, what Bitcoin is. And a lot of the Conference of State Bank Supervisors model legislation, they really get into the nitty gritty. They talk about node runners, non-custodial services. And I think this is what has been in the news lately related to CBDCs and all the rest was this bill in South Dakota. And I'm now a resident there, so it's important for me to follow that stuff. But the the kind of problematic aspect of this is that a lot of the state banking supervisors, you know, they're not really held accountable in the same way. You know, they're not on TV every day. They're not taking meetings like you would any other legislator. So there's a lot of different conflicts there that make it hard for Bitcoin-only firms, I know, to break through. I'm very happy to hear about any success stories. But just to know that this organization is helping craft model policy. They partner with the Uniform Law Commission to push a lot of this through. 
And it's a lot of very nitty gritty nuts and bolts stuff. Some of it, obviously, as a hardcore Bitcoiner, no one would ever agree with. But we at least know kind of what we're dealing with. We know what to oppose or what to change. So you know, hopefully funny. that's a good. Yeah, it's what you mentioned um, the CS Conference of State Bank and Supervisors CSBB. If I'm not mistaken, and I think this it, typically, you know, you think the state's a little more innovative and a little more nimble. But they, in your research, I, they sued the uh, OCC at the federal level several years back because the OCC was trying to push for that federal fintech charter, which did end up getting authorized under Brian Brooks. But do you remember? Do you remember that? I think that was like 2016 or 2017 when they sued to stop that from happening because it was they saw it as an existential threat to state banks. Yeah, I'm not familiar as much with that lawsuit, but they have had others where they're essentially trying to claw back power that the feds have taken over. So they're they're it's riled up me, about it. it. They are riled up, and that's just another instance where it, it, it's it's not as in the news as you pointed out as some like the OCC and the federal bank regulators are. But in many ways, the state banks have a lot more of an impact on small businesses throughout the country. Because a lot of crypto-related businesses, Bitcoin-related businesses aren't going to be able to get banked with some of the big prudentially federal, federally regulated banks like J.P. Morgan. Yeah, I think this brings up a, you know, a good distinction of where, like, what issues are states actually going to be playing a big role in and what issues do states have almost no role in or and where do things fall in the middle? That leads us to this Uniform Law Commission, right, which, you know, there, there was a big fuss over the last few weeks and, you know, on Twitter uh, around, you know, what what was taking place in South Dakota, which is an update of the Uniform Commercial Code. And pretty much these are, you know, commercial rules that police business activity across states. And ideally, you know, this code is like, there's a reason they call it the Uniform Commercial Code is because they want these policies to be, uh, you know, pretty much the same state by state, so that if you're transacting in one state and you know how to use your money in one state, it's going to be, you know, work pretty much the same way in any other state, right? If I want to buy a pack of gum in Wyoming, that should, you know, work pretty much the same way that I should buy a pack of gum in Florida, right? So that, that's the general idea, just kind of the, the explain like in five version of uniform commercial code. I'm happy to, you know, anybody else can, can fill in with more details or things as they see fit. Now, you know, as this was getting updated in, or yeah, I saw you came off off of mute. Did you want to add more? Just just one thing very quick. In my experience lobbying for any kind of model policy on money transmitter licenses, the Uniform Law Commission is what you butt up against because they've already, they've been in the game a long time and they know all of the lobbyists. They know all of the legislators. They've already had their model policy and they wrote their first model policy uh, like years ago. So they've been able to get this stuff out to people's eyes and people's desks for a long time. So when you, you're an upstart and you're talking about modernizing these rules for Bitcoin firms or brokerages, they're just kind of like, well, we already kind of solved that problem. And I think that is where the education, as Dan mentioned, has to come in is that, look, this ain't done. There's a lot more that, that has to be done. And sure, they did their homework, but that doesn't mean these are the best rules. There are better ways forward. That's it. Yeah, it's a great point. The, these uh, these people, they're behemoth, right? They've been around for, for over a century at this point. And I think that needs to be taken into account when we pick which battles we would like to fight. And so, you know, if you give me 60 seconds, I'd, I'd like to air, you know, just kind of a, a personal perspective on 
you know, what the last few weeks are, or, you know, some of the dialogue around the last few weeks around this uniform commercial code. And then I'm curious to hear all thoughts as well. But basically, South Dakota, you know, their assembly passed this update of the uniform commercial code that very explicitly classifies Bitcoin as not money, right? And, you know, their, their definition of money and these uniform commercial codes are very similar to definitions of like legal tender, right? They're determining what businesses will be forced to, you know, accept and can legally pay with, right? Like transacting with vendors, you know, so if let's say Bitcoin was under the definition of money in these uniform commercial codes, then in that specific state, you know, a vendor, a business would be legally like, uh, they would essentially have to accept Bitcoin as payment for, you know, services or, or goods that they would like to sell with that they would like to sell because El Salvador adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. You know, there was essentially this like gray area, this loophole in the previous uniform commercial codes where someone could potentially argue that Bitcoin, you know, falls under the uniform commercial code definition of money. The other thing that people raised, you know, an issue with in this updated uniform commercial code was it explicitly allows for central bank digital currency to be defined as money. And I think a lot of people worried about that. My take on the uniform commercial code update was this is I think the impacts of those, of those changes were unknown and potentially minimal, you know, at worst with regards to Bitcoin, I think anything on, you know, that has to do with central bank digital currencies, I don't think states saying like CBDCs are money is actually like, like that doesn't change what's happening on the federal level. Right. Like if a CBDC is going to, you know, be passed, it's going to, it's going to come from the, it's going to come from the top down. And so, you know, I thought that there was a big ruckus, right. There was a big kind of storm like brewing about, you know, Hey, we've got to stop this uniform commercial code update. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have pushed back against, you know, this language. What I am saying is that I think it was potentially a bit overblown. People were saying that this UCC update was, you know, uniform commercial code update was going to allow states to adopt a central bank digital currency, right? It was going to create a state backdoor for CBDCs. I, I don't think that's a, like how that works. I think that's misleading. And then, you know, Bitcoin is money. Just final thing, and I'll, I'll open it up. Sorry, because I've been going on here a while. Bitcoin is money. Like Bitcoin is not currently defined as money or legal tender anywhere, right? So this wouldn't have changed how people were using Bitcoin. Does that, you know, if we can have a conversation about Bitcoin as legal tender, and that's something people can certainly advocate or fight for. But to me, that seems like a losing battle at the moment. I think our education and people's views on Bitcoin aren't close to where you would need to be in order to like genuinely advocate and, and pass something for Bitcoin, like to fall under the definition of money or legal tender. But I think the CBDC point specifically, I, it was talked about as a backdoor on a state level. And I just think that's a misunderstanding of how a CBDC is going to be like, actually ushered in so forgive me there that was something that i've been frustrated with for a while but i'm open to being wrong as well yeah i can't see how a state individually would be able to declare a cbdc viable i mean to me that's a federal issue i mean same argument could be potentially made on the legal tender issue on the state side too with bitcoin i mean historically obviously states have their own currencies but that's probably a bigger conversation and i think currently it's about 44 correct me if i'm wrong a little over 40 states, I think, that actually explicitly mention virtual currencies. And then that's the term they use. I'm not saying that's the best term um, in their money transmitters laws. So that's not all 50. I'm curious to see what, the, what states are not mentioned on that list. But 
Yeah, I'm not too familiar, to be honest with you, with the, with the Uniform Commission. I generally understand what it is. I know it's been around since the 1800s. And some more recent examples of their successes have been like with e-sig, signature laws. You know, they wanted to make sure that was standard across the country, across the states. I'm sure there's other examples that can be cited here. But money transmitters, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a state-by-state issue. And it's really a competitive advantage. Other states tend to be a lot more friendlier than others, as we mentioned. And then at the, the non-money transmitter topic, you know, some of the other industries that are regulated at the state level, I would, I would say energy, and you could say insurance, if you want to go down that route, certain licensures. Yeah, my takes on this are, it kind of just showed their cards, and it kind of highlights the game theory of Bitcoin, because other nations adopting it as legal tender, kind of screw with the code and, and screw with the language of the laws in our country. And it seems like they don't want Bitcoin to be considered as money. But, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Like, I'm not a lawyer, but if another country adopts it as legal tender, should that be considered money or or treated like a foreign currency? Probably. <laughs> like, it makes sense to me. And then in terms of, like, how they sneak in the central bank digital currency, I think that's really interesting because it's basically saying how any kind of digital money, it's only when it's issued by government or a central bank, that's, that's money, right? Anything else is not state issued, it's not money. And so they're kind of laying down some kind of framework for a CBDC. But it's like you said, it's not even the Fed, it has to happen all the way up at Congress. Because I don't think the Fed even has a legal ability to issue a CBDC as it currently stands. So there would have to be new legislation passed by Congress to even consider the Fed issuing any kind of CBDC. And so that I do agree that this was kind of overblown. But I, I thought it was interesting just from like, they're kind of showing their cards a little bit. And that's kind of how I took it. Yeah, that's a great point, Sam. You're right. Absolutely right. It, it is would take an act of Congress. I mean, just based off that Project Hamilton report that the Boston Fed did, you know, they're not going to take any action, obviously, themselves without support from the White House and then authorization from Congress. But that, God forbid, years away, if it ever happens. Yeah, and I'll add to your point, Grant, it definitely was kind of gone overboard. And this is the issue with working at the state level, right, is there are only so many areas where you can have wins or you can have active things. I mean, I've worked at state policy on many different issues. Most of this stuff is boring as hell, very procedural. It it follows. I mean, a lot of these are part time legislators. You know, they're not full time sitting there coming up with new rules and laws. It's a lot of model policy that changes hands, stuff from other states or from lobbyists. So this was just a essentially a taxonomy update you know they call instead of just saying digital assets and whatever they call them controllable electronic records and they go into how do you have property rights over that how do you figure out who owns what in digital ledgers so in a way it's just to add to the beef of taxonomy of words of laws it's definitely a building block for something but in my analysis i actually see it as a way that a state could technically block a CBDC because yes, it would have to be approved by Congress, but issued by federal reserve. And then there are all kinds of different issues there with who's actually issuing the money and who's controlling it. And there are all types of different arguments you can make there. So I'm saying to see where this will go on. And I'm sure this fight will pick up. You have to imagine there's a lot of political coalitions that are also following this from a, I would say more power skeptic position usually a conservative groups that are following this as well. You know, they'll, they'll toot the air horn a lot, but, you know, we kind of have to stay humble. And I think, think that's 
kind of what classified South Dakota, even though we love Christy Nome. She's been great so far. I just want to, I want to piggyback on that for a second on, on the, one of the first things you said, which is how state government can deal with a lot of boring things. And I, I think, I think that is something that gets lost because we, you know, we tend to only pay attention to the state stuff when something big is happening is from our angle, when it has to do with, <laughs> when it has to do with Bitcoin or proof of work or what have you. But yeah, these, these people are spending most of their time, you know, doing votes on changing the name of a street or, you know, devoting a rec center or, or stuff like that. Right. And, and then, but this also brings in one of the fears, right. That I have, which is what we saw in New York is a pretty savvy freshman politician in Anna Kellis, who recently became more famous with her bashing of Bitcoin at the, at the most recent Senate subcommittee hearing. But, you know, a, a pretty savvy politician who recognized that this topic was something that she could take a hyper-localized issue in terms of Bitcoin mining in one particular place and blast it into a statewide issue. And in doing so, completely uplift her own political profile with the tons of press that our industry gets. And so one of one of the fears I think we have to be aware of at the state level, and one of my fears all along was like, who are the other politicians who are going to pick up on this that, you know, all I have to do is, you know, make a stand against Bitcoin or crypto or whatever you want to call it. And I get to, you know, virtue signal falsely on the environment, but I also get to get tons of press and elevate my profile. And this is something I, I think we have to be aware of at the state level is that folks may in the future, no matter what the state is, see this, especially states that follow in line with with a deep blue state like New York. You know, if they can get tons of free press and and get a great environmental rating um, just by standing up for this issue or making a bill, we have to be aware of that because it's something that is very attractive to a politician who otherwise was, would, would be, you know, doing a lot of these boring things. And so I think we have to be aware that this this of this paradox that has existed for a while and has and will continue is that just by a person bashing Bitcoin, even if most of the reactions they get online are negative from Bitcoiners or people who believe in decentralization, they're still getting more clicks than they ever had. And so we have to be aware that there is this this paradox in terms of the press that our industry receives that sometimes the more that we jump on it, the happier the enemy gets. You know, that's, I'm so glad you brought that up, Kyle. I just got to ch- jump in here. It's, it's incredibly frustrating when there's elected officials in certain states, I'll use New York as an example, that have great mining facilities. It, it creates quite a bit of jobs and tax revenue for the, for the region. And they know that most of their claims have been debunked multiple times, but they'll still try to get a dig in, you know, to get, to, to get some political contributions, I'm guessing, from certain sides of the uh, political ecosystem. And it's counterproductive. And again, that's one of the reasons why I think some of these uh, companies are moving on to greener pastures. But I do commend the ones that stay to fight to, to fight back. And that's why we need to do what we can to support these these groups in all states. Yeah, if you all saw one of the hearings just a couple months ago, I think I tweeted about this, and, and I'll, I'll never forget this because I think it's so hilarious, right? If, if you're a fan of the OC or you've ever watched the OC, right? Ryan from the OC, just an actor, right? Has spent the last few years researching Bitcoin and crypto and, and his whole brand now is 
is essentially being a, a crypto hater, right? And he was asked to testify at a congressional, you know, hearing. So it, it goes, you know, to your point, Kyle, that people can build a brand, whether they're a politician or an influencer or, you know, whoever, right? Like there's a brand to be built, you know, bashing. But the flip side is also true, which is we've seen politicians and maybe, you know, people in the spaces, some of your favorite politicians who have built their brand on being pro-Bitcoin, right? So we recognize like the, the carrot and the stick works both ways. And, you know, that we can continue to, you know, like dangle the carrot as an industry. And, and that that's something that I think our industry has become more savvy about, you know, over the past a couple of years is recognizing that that game goes both ways. And I think Christy Nome, who ultimately vetoed that Uniform Commercial Code update in South Dakota, is an example of someone who is potentially reaping the rewards of being closer to our side, right? So understand that that game works both ways. I think you're spot on and, and it's all about incentives. So how do you align the incentives for those in power um, and make it so that they're more likely to be on our side than the skeptic side? But yeah, we can. Oh, Sam. I mean, I was just going to congratulate the OC actor on a fantastic monologue. Like he obviously practiced it and it was really good. And then he didn't even like that guy doesn't even do the proof of work to do the research. He just, he said he admitted, well, I didn't want to do the research. So I'm going to hire another guy to do the research. And that's like the epitome of the fiat system, right? You like Bitcoiners do your own research. We do the work, but this guy on the other side of the aisle doesn't even take the time to learn it himself. I, I, in that vein, I'll also Cal Penn. He was able to parlay his anti-Bitcoin video funded by Bloomberg into a nice interview with President Biden. And I don't doubt that those two were not related. <laughs> literal, literal actors are our competition. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I, could, I could talk about this for, for a while. But for the sake of time, I want to keep going on this. We're about an hour in. You know, we, we probably won't go for too much longer. So we'll probably speed run through some of the rest of this. But, you know, we've got regulatory sandboxes. We've got no action letters. We've got proof of work. And we've got taxation. Let's lump in regulatory sandboxes and no action letter. Yeah, would you like to give us a quick overview there? And then, again, you know, if you guys want to jump in, awesome. If not, we can keep going. Yeah, I'll zip through. I mean, North Carolina is, is definitely of interest. Also, Utah, a couple other states. The idea of a regulatory sandbox, it's an idea from the UK. Essentially, you just it's a program that allows companies in innovative areas to basically offer products and services to consumers in that state and not have to apply for any formal license, which is amazing. There have been a lot of great libertarian groups who've been working on this at the state level, Louisiana, Utah, West Virginia, Wyoming, Florida, and the rest. There we've just seen a lot of ample opportunity to serve customers, get Bitcoin into people's hands, you know, really allow them to, to do it. And we're not just talking about exchanges here. It could be all, I know there's all types of reward card companies. There's all kinds of different firms that have popped up around this. Hopefully most of the time they'll keep these programs in place and maybe they'll learn from it. You know, I don't know the staffing side on the, on the let's say the state government agencies, how they're doing there. I have heard some bad reports in some states where they aren't following through as much. Uh, but I think that's also relevant with the no action letters so you have had states, particularly the banking supervisors or some of the areas, who basically just don't even view any kind of Bitcoin to Bitcoin exchange, address to address or peer to peer, where let's say you're an exchange and you sell directly to a consumer. They don't 
really consider that money transmission because, as we mentioned with the Uniform Law Commission, Bitcoin ain't money. So that actually means that people have less regulations in some states, Arkansas, some in Idaho, some in California, if they're able to prove they're not actually transmitting USD from person A to person B, there's just an exchange that's happening. So th there's nothing formal in this area. And of course, anything could change. You know, this is a regulatory uncertainty. You could have a new government that would come in. Surely in California, there'll be some change at some point. Uh, there's already a lot of crackdowns. Uh, but these are at least two areas that I think are somewhat positive, more hopeful and bullish on the regulatory sandboxes, because again, it's not just coin or crypto specific companies. It's also just fintech and a lot of different innovative firms. I like that because it's, it's politicians in a way taking risks and allowing companies to come in and say, okay, well, we'll just do this whole thing later, come in, provide value, get some jobs, pump some money in the economy, and then we can talk about what the rules will be. But it will be up to, to all of us as educators, as advocates, to make sure that those rights are written correct, the rules are written correctly. Yeah, the sandbox is definitely a success story, <clears throat> at least in our state. It, this, it was launched, the, the bill initially was launched in 2018. It was killed. It didn't have enough support. It was also just being backed by one industry, the quote, fintech industry. Fast forward, after our blockchain task force convened, we, we made a list of, of ideas and concepts that we thought were very doable. So we proposed the establishment of a regulatory sandbox, but it had to have, it couldn't just be fintech. We wanted to have you know, Bitcoin, blockchain baked into the actual verbiage. So we worked hard on that. It was signed into the late 2021 Sandbox Act of 2021, but it was unique in that it was the first in the country that was multi-agency. And we did that because we didn't want it to be under one politician's branch. Some states elect the attorney general, the state treasurer, you know, the, the secretary of state, other states that are appointed. In our state, most of them are elected. But we had ours multi-agencies. So the way it works is it's administered by an innovation council. And every other year it rotates under a different but uh, under a different agency. So it starts currently the first one's the state banking commissioner's office. And they've become quite friendly towards us over the last few years. And in a few years it'll move over to the attorney general and then it'll move to the treasurer and so on. Funding wise, uh, that was probably a mistake that I think other states can learn from. We we did not bake in a budget for an executive director for it. We thought that it could be managed underneath a respective agency. But we're going to go back later this year and request some, some funding for, for a staff. And the reason we did that, too, is because we wanted to keep the fees low. You, a, a sandbox can be self-sustaining through application fees. Some states, they're very high. We kept ours very low, very modest, because we wanted startups to be able to apply for this. We didn't want it just to be for the very large companies and corporations. We don't think that's the point of an innovation sandbox. And we have, we've just been getting a ton of applications. One of our task force members was appointed to the Innovation Council. She's doing a great job. And uh, yeah, she's saying that the applications are coming in. There's quite a bit big fintech community in the Charlotte area. We want to get a lot more cryptocurrency, coin-related companies to come. It's slowly growing. And I think... You know, some states have, they've been, it's a great experiment. Again, a lot of these have not been successful. So we'll see how this plays out, but I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that we're going to have some, some. Awesome. Yeah. Any, anything else on regulatory sandboxes, no action letters, Sam, Kyle, have either of these affected your companies at all? Not really, not negatively. That's for sure. Yeah. Those are, those have been the easy states to work in. Yeah, obviously. Cool. 
yeah, I, I don't have too much to say on that topic. Awesome. Then let's keep rolling. We got two more things that we want to get to here. Two, two and a half, right? Proof of work and taxation. Proof of work, I think a lot of people, you know, have, have heard about what happened in New York um, with a mining moratorium. I think fewer people have maybe heard about some of the positive steps that states have taken with regards to proof of work. You know, there are some states that are, you know, offering incentives for miners to show up, right? Credits, either, you know, tax credits for, for miners to show up in their state. You know, certain municipalities are adopting either friendly or unfriendly regulations around noise, right? Like pollution, like all all these things that affect miners in ways that maybe, yes, there's mining moratoriums like we saw in New York, which is a huge battle. But there are all these like, you know, ways that you can kind of nickel and dime positively or negatively, you know, for or against proof of work. So, Yale, you want to kick us off here? And then Kyle, I'd really like to hear from you how, you know, some of these big things and small things have affected Foundry. Yeah, I mean, this is a kind of a classic example of what we call chasing smokestacks. You have states that want to invite industry into their state. Often they'll offer some kind of tax credits and they're just like foaming at the mouth to invite commercial miners in. Some states, the complete opposite, New York of note. There have been you know really good efforts in really the last few months to get actual proof of work as protected. And really in mining is, is not just an industry that is allowing, you know, all these people to come there, but it also allows the state to benefit from entrepreneurs coming. And, and there's been, I think, some very positive aspects. There's been some great work done, you know, advocacy level wise. You have a Satoshi Action Group has really done a good amount and putting out model policy, talking about microgrids, orphan wells. I mean, a lot of that is very nitty gritty. And the majority has been done in red states, which I think will be our savior. Where I do see a problem is discriminatory pricing. That has happened in a few localities, particularly when it comes to utilities, where they're trying to charge extra rates. I mean, not even talking about Biden's 30% tax on, on miners. But I think that is one place where it would be very important, I think, to instill state protections on basically non-discriminatory pricing. You know, it's just a computer running at the end of the day and they'd like to classify it differently. And I think that is one step that we cannot allow them to have. But I'd love to hear the practical examples. So in New York, the, the, the original bill that we started to fight against in terms of the moratorium bill was sort of a, a blanket ban for three years on proof of work mining. And over, over a period of time, because we were able to garner support from, from some of the biggest unions like the IBEW, electrical workers, like the, the biggest in New York, AFL-CIO, because we were able to educate policymakers, we were able to get that narrowed down to you know, two years of, of, of a ban on you know, behind-the-meter proof of work at power plants, right, that are using any mix of of fossil fuel. Now, some have said, well, that's kind of narrow then at the end. And Anna Kellis herself has made this this argument that it's so narrow and they're just looking for time. Well, it's narrow. (laughs) It didn't start out narrow. And secondly, the reason that we fought so hard is because this is the first case in history where a government entity, state or federal, is trying to limit an industry's access 
to certain types of energy and not placing the same restrictions on all industries. And this, this is a, a huge thing because it, it, it's, it's allowing the government to, to quite openly select winners and losers based on the activity they are participating in. And, you know, they have all of these things about energy consumption and, and the journalists started, you know, all the journalists started using this term electricity guzzling as though it was some sort of professional journalism term. But it's, it's, it's almost when you look at it contextually with other industries, we're using less, <laughs> we're using less energy and the energy we are using is more than half renewable or, or carbon zero. So the, the, the thing we're trying to fight is being able to be scapegoated. And what we see now that is that that has been now pushed over to the federal side with choke point 2.0. And I don't know if we want to get too much into this, but we see that there, there has been a divide and conquer model against Bitcoin and the rest of the crypto industry, which is from the Bitcoin side of things, we're going to use the ESG lobby to go after it. And from the rest of the crypto industry, we want to focus on regulatory stuff, banking, and, and all of that. And, you know, for a while within our own industry, and I, and I, I hope this is starting to change a little bit when it comes to public policy, at least for the very near term, which is that I think people are realizing they've been divided and conquered and have been throwing each other under the bus. And I'm hoping that there is some sort of voting block that gets more crystallized moving forward where, you know, Bitcoin and the crypto community can at least in the very near term agree that we're trying to be eliminated by the same enemy. And perhaps we need to vote together to make some sort of change. But in terms of New York, that was the main reason we fought it, because we do not believe that a government has the right to pick and choose who has access to it. Yeah, I don't really have much to add there. Um, in the sense of there are a million things I could add there and each of them will be a rabbit hole. That, uh, and and this is sort of a, uh, this is sort of a controversial thing within, within our community, right? Who, you know, what does, does the current political environment trump protocol wars, right? Does, you know, when do, <laughs> when does that happen? And I don't necessarily know the answer. I do know that as somebody who comes from a federal government background and as somebody who's, you know, I've, I've worked in the White House, I've, I've, I've worked in various communities that, that are, you know, up there in terms of security clearance and stuff. I can tell you, I'm always somebody who is not lean towards conspiracy because I've seen the incompetence that can be in government. And so I don't lean that way. However, I have never seen, perhaps since the Patriot Act and post, right after post 9-11, I have never seen such an intentional and coordinated attack against an industry or against an entity since that time. And, you know, in this, in this thing, and I, I don't even want to call it a conspiracy because they're being quite open about it. And so I think that the, the Bitcoin community, the crypto community at some point needs to start having this discussion of, you know, is the enemy of my enemy and my friend here? Like, you know, are, are we under an existential threat where we can put, you know, politics ahead of protocol wars? I don't know what the right answer is, but it's at least worth having a dis discussion about. Kyle's completely right on that coordinated effort on the regulatory side. It's, it's, 
it's certainly happening on a variety of fronts to the greater ecosystem, specifically on proof of work and, and the mining side at the state level. I think this whole discussion, whether it's energy, whether it's electricity, whether it's taxes, I think it just really underscores how this ESG movement's gotten completely out of control. And there's no there's no end to it for now. And to me, if I want to use my electricity to do something lawful, that's nobody's business. And I don't think it's appropriate, perhaps, I don't think it really is legal to be able to determine how I could be taxed 30% if I'm mining Bitcoin. I know, again, that's just a proposal in the Biden budget. I don't think it's going to go anywhere. But the fact that it's even proposed is really mind boggling. And, uh, and then that's the, but from the energy usage side too, to me, that's, that's, it's nobody's business. Yeah. I'm going to call myself out here. Uh, you know, I think sometimes we can look at, let's say what's going on with the SEC, right. And uh, certain things getting labeled as securities, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And it's very easy when you were on the other side of some of these actions to, to kind of just play like you know, thank goodness that's not me, right? Thank goodness, like they're not going after Bitcoin this time. And there are some things that we at Bitcoin Policy Institute are going to, you know, fight for that are not explicitly Bitcoin related and, and fight against. And there's some things that we won't necessarily endorse, right? There are some things out there that just, I believe, straight up are securities. And, and I think, you know, there's a reason where our organization is defending Bitcoin and not every single thing that exists out there. But I do agree that like when you are constantly pointing fingers and when you are constantly, you know, separating yourself from this broader ecosystem, you know, we do lose out on the massive amount of capital that exists in the broader crypto industry. We lose out on a lot of those lobbyists and, and ultimately it, it turns into, you know, this infighting that does hurt proof of work advocacy. So, you know, I'm not saying that like, you know, one approach is, is perfect. And I, I think if you followed our work at BPI, you see that like we, we draw a hard line on proof of work and we're not willing to, we're not willing to compromise that really in any way, shape or form. But we, and, and as, as much as we are Bitcoin only, like, you know, Dan, there's a reason you're on this space, right? Like, and, and, and part of an organization that is not just Bitcoin only is because I think we recognize the importance of coalition building, right? The importance of folks like yourself who can advocate for proof of work while advocating for the industry more broadly as well. Right. And like, and, and at the end of the day, to your point, Kyle, there is, and I don't know exactly where it is either, but there is a tipping point where you know, at some point, you, you know, if we're playing this game, do you put aside some of your your, your pride about certain things and, and uh, get in bed essentially with, with people that maybe you can agree with on one or two issues and it doesn't mean you have to agree with them on every single thing, right? And so this is a constant challenge. I, I think it, it's important for the Bitcoin community broadly to reflect on this question but because we are getting to the point where some of these actions are so strong so coordinated and so negative toward bitcoin that we do have to start asking ourselves where can we create coalition and where can we find partners to help us fight back because if it's just us fighting alone i i worry that that is not the most winnable battle yeah Right. And then and and we saw in New York, you know, you can you can have all of this, you know, <laughs> and and Dan knows this, like, you know, a lot of us spent, you know, 16, 18 hours a day doing nothing but fighting this bill, including myself. And it was 
you know, you can do all of this advocacy for proof of work, and then you can have a very prominent politician call in, you know, a group of, of, you know, fintech guys or proof of stake guys and or whoever it is, and they can just whisper the opposite. And so then it gives the politician this ability to say, hey, I'm pro I'm pro crypto. This is something that developed in New York, this talking point. I'm pro crypto. I'm not just I'm not crypto mining is bad, though. Right. It gives them this way out, you know, this way of, of somehow justifying like, you know, oh, I love kids. I just I'm just not a fan of childbirth. And and so we have to be able to if there's if there's any way. And I think it's starting to become clear to people now because I think the entire industry, Bitcoin and crypto, are recognizing that the current administration is 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 taking some swift action that we haven't seen before. And like everybody said, it's coordinated and it's intentional and it is scapegoating and it's discriminatory and and it's being done under the guise of of financial contagion and it's being done it's being justified by esg things like that and it's it's become part of and just to dan's points last thing i'll say about the esg angle which is you know we've seen over the time in history especially in government i i saw it with terrorism but we first saw you know with communism right where communism was the justification for pretty much doing anything right any policy you need to get behind any any budgetary needs you have, just put communism in there and it works. And then, and then it was terrorism that we did that with. And, and these start off as legitimate concerns, but then over time, they just become these, these muddy areas where people can just throw in terminology and get money to do whatever they want, especially at the, the federal government level. And we saw this with COVID as well. And throughout all of this, now we're at the peak ESG point where it doesn't matter what you're doing in society, you throw in the ESG narrative and it somehow justifies whatever you're doing. And this is a really dangerous point because it, it, it turns into a sort of McCarthyism. And some of these Senate hearings that I've watched that you've mentioned before, and the most recent subcommittee, I mean, it re really reminds me of like the 1940s, 50s, McCarthyism, HUAC, House, what was that? House Un-American Activities Commission, right? Committee. I mean, this is what it's starting to look like and have, and have these feelings of. And so I think we really have to be aware that, you know, this is a very coordinated, intentional act, and we can use all the allies we can get. I love that. I love that. And I, I would say to that, Kyle, and look, I, I come at this from a consumer advocate position. So I don't really care which companies are going to win at the end of the day. It's just how does the individual user, the consumer, what is their process? How are they able to access Bitcoin? How are they able to use it? How are they able to convert fiat? And what I've noticed just being in D.C., being at you know world events, the centralized coin companies are flush with cash, are spending it like crazy. They have all the big media organizations that they partner with for their industry events, which is really the only way some media companies make money nowadays. And we lose the narrative on why this stuff is important in the first place. Are you in it for freedom money? Or are you in it to get you know your coin listed? And I think that's where all of the emphasis is. And when politicians you know, think of crypto, they think of the, the swank lobbyist in the suit who comes from the, the company who's in there talking about X and Y and swaps. And they don't think about the individual people in their own writings, jurisdictions, wherever it might be, 
they could use this stuff. They should be able to use Bitcoin to accept at their store, at their hardware store, or if they're doing professional services. And I think those stories and telling those stories, having that human connection, that I think will win out. And it's the only reason we talk about any of these rules anyway. How can an individual person access Bitcoin once it's converted? And then how are they able to use it? What value can they do? And unfortunately, we get too lost in the process that we don't really get to talk about that value add. And unfortunately, if we were to change that, you know, there'd be a meeting of the minds, libertarians, progressives, conservatives. And I think we could advance it. I, I, I personally couldn't agree more. You know, one of the things that we are trying to get away from and that we have been doing since the beginning of the fight in New York, and I think that a lot of folks are doing this now across the country and especially in D.C., and it's been something we've coordinated and worked on with folks, but, you know, is getting away from the exact stereotype you described, which is this like suited up derivatives trader, crypto bro type of image that is in the minds of your average policymaker. And we're at this really unique time when even the data is supporting us, right? And so Foundry, we have a one pager we leave behind that that shows, you know, according to the most neutral of sources, the Kansas City Fed, according to the University of Chicago, a plaid survey, like the the, the people who are investing in this technology the most are coming from per capita from communities of color. And when they're asked why, why is that reason? right? It's not because they want to, they're looking for a lottery ticket to get rich. No, the reason they're give, giving almost 50% of them is because this is the technology. This is the financial instrument that I feel I have the most access to. I have not, you know, in the past, I, I do not trust the traditional financial system because I've experienced predatory loan practices. I've experienced, you know, discriminatory, you know, all sorts of discrimination through the financial system. And so now, there's something that I feel I have more access to. And that's coming from their own mouths and surveys. And so we see 21% of Hispanic Americans per capita are investing in Bitcoin or crypto. We see 18% of black Americans compared to 13% of whites. And so we have to get rid of this crypto bro stigma because not only is it damaging to our efforts and makes people roll their eyes, but it's also completely false. Can I just chime in here, Grant? Yeah, of course. I want to touch on, Kyle, I loved your comments of how they use ESG similar to terrorism to kind of push through these policies. And, But I, I disagree. I think we've reached peak ESG. I think we're past that. I think as we moved into this world of continuing tensions at the geopolitical level and you start to consider a resiliency in supply chains, reshoring of manufacturing, security in energy starts to get prioritized and these bullshit ESG narratives start to become less more, less tolerable by the people. And so, you know, in that, and if that's the case, then I think Bitcoin's long-term value will shine because on the ground, it's really hard to dismiss, say, the former you know, CEO of ERCOT saying how it helps stabilize the grid or some of these major oil and gas companies that are important to America's future and energy independence saying how it helps, you know, mitigate flare gas mitigation or how it helps subsidize renewable build-outs. Like those are facts on the ground. And over time, I think it'll get fought by these policymakers. But those are real benefits that are really happening on the ground that are brought about by proof of work. And, you know, there's there's battles here between like proof of stake and proof of work. And I get annoyed because there's they never talk about the trade offs in terms of security, in terms of decentralization when they bring up these arguments 
And but those are again, we have truth on our side, and I think the truth will prevail. And if you look at the federal government, you know their climate and energy implications of crypto assets in the United States paper that was published in September. I mean, it was garbage. I mean, Nick Carter did an annotated version, and it's hysterical. I, I recommend everyone go read it because it it just picks apart this report. I mean, they should be embarrassed. That's how you know that you know maybe this is a coordinated effort, right? Because this they cannot be serious with this report. It is it is garbage. It's amateur. They don't talk about. They didn't they didn't go to any of the industry insiders to get their opinions. Their most cited source is a dig economist, a freaking blogger from the Dutch central bank, with has this flawed model of uh, the carbon emissions. I mean, it's it's literally garbage. And so I think underlying this whole thing is this argument, which is really tough for, for us to kind of get through this message because it becomes a philosophical, philosophical question, philosophical question, sorry, of is Bitcoin worth the energy? And that's the, that's the hard thing because it becomes this philosophical question where they're saying, hey, Bitcoin's not worth it. What is this you know, digital money? But obviously that shows a ignorance around the problems with our current traditional monetary system and the, and the dollar itself and why Bitcoin's important. And that's really tough, I think, to get that message across to policymakers. So that kind of underlines the whole thing. Even more insidious about that report, they actually did go and talk to people in the industry. They actually did talk to Nick. They talked, I, I mean, there, there was a wide variety of people who talked to them, and then they completely discounted it all. Oh my I mean, gosh. That, that was the craziest part of that, is that they... They actually spoke to people, discounted it, and were like, nope, we're going to devote 17% of our source notes to Alex DeVries. That's how you know. The 100% without, I, I got to be careful here, but let's just say that that is a great example of the distinction that you were talking about, Kyle, of in some cases, in many cases in government, there's incompetence. And in other cases, there are forces at play that are not immediately evident. And I will say that you are, you are spot on that that office knows better in a lot of situations. And I think it's full of very smart people who are very capable of understanding proof of work, who are very competent and, and were able to wrap their minds around a, a lot of the things that we talk about, you know, with MBPI and that everybody on, on this panel, you could talk about with the proof of work. Um, and for some reason or another, and I'm not going to speculate on why, because I don't know the answer. And, and I think many people come up with different answers, but for one reason or another, right, their understanding of proof of work was not ultimately displayed in, in the report that we saw. And so that is incredibly concerning. And I think that speaks to some larger, you know, federal issues that we have and, and you know, parts of the, the game, if that's what you want to call it, that our industry is still, still working through and still trying to get involved in. And there are things that are happening at a level that is very difficult for a new industry fighting an uphill battle to be involved in. And so if there's one thing you know, that keeps me up at night, like it, it's that. It's, it's the stuff that we don't necessarily see, um, even though all the facts that we have you know, at our disposal kind of suggest that that outcome should have, should have gone differently. So again, you know, have to have to be careful about that. I think we'll talk about that in more detail at another point, you know, with some more distance from that report. But yeah, hey guys, the the space w was awesome, Chris. I know we've gone like ninety minutes. We uh, we pretty much covered this kind of final piece of like friends and enemies. I don't want to take up 
you know, too much more of anybody's time. I know we could all talk about this for, for hours and hours, but what I'd like to do is just, if you all have any closing thoughts, closing ideas, now's your time. We covered a ton here. If you all join in the middle, go to the first tweet that's up at the top. And we were talking about a piece that Yale published through the Bitcoin Policy Institute on statewide Bitcoin policies. This space has covered more than almost any space that I've ever been a part of when it comes to like just straight up like content around actual Bitcoin policies. So thank you to everybody who's on this space. Dan, we'll start with you. We'll go to Sam, then we'll go to Kyle, and then we'll close it off with Yale. Closing thoughts. Thanks, Grant. Sam, BPI, Bitcoin Magazine. This was a, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this. I feel like we could talk all day about this. but And I have to drop in a quick second. I, I'm running behind on a call. But I just want to thank everybody and say that, you know, this is the time for unity. There's there's still a lot of tribalism, whether we like it or not, in, in the in this community. But I think in the long run, you know, Bitcoin is, <laughs> I mean, that that's going to come out on top. And if that doesn't succeed, really nothing else, nothing, nothing else will in, in this ecosystem. And I'm looking forward to seeing everybody at these events. Feel free to DM me, reach out. Any questions you have, I'm here. So again, thanks. Thanks so much. Yeah, my, my closing comments probably around the title of the room, Can States Go Bitcoin? You know, I think the, the huge migration of hash rate in 2021 from China to the United States was really bullish because I, I call it, it's like the disunited king of hash rate. And America is really unique because it has states' rights, right? Each state can enact their own policies. Each state in America has its own property laws, taxes, politicians, and cultures. And that's a really big benefit for having a lot of Bitcoin infrastructure and mining in America, you know, you recently, you can visit California and Texas, and it literally feels like you're in two separate countries nowadays. And that's, and so that's important to know. And I think, I think that that is a benefit long-term to Bitcoin. And I, I think certain states will embrace Bitcoin. Certain states will not. Certain states will take the benefits and the jobs and the tax revenues. And other states will shoot themselves in the foot. Um, and we'll see which ones win long-term. But I think that's a huge positive to kind of have a lot of Bitcoin in, in the United States of America. Yeah, thanks to everybody for the invite today. Grant, Bitcoin Magazine, nice to nice to talk with Yale, Sam, and, and everybody else. And Dan, I will just say that um, I think this is a very unique time. I agree we should find allies where we can. I, I tend to start with one premise, which is, does this does a person or does an entity want Bitcoin to succeed? The answer after that is yes. I think there's an ally or a potential ally there, and so in in unprecedented times of attack, I think we need to find those those allies where we can. Um, I'll also say that I am very optimistic because in my time in this community, I've found it to be one of the best communities around, and it is a one way sieve, and that means that once people get into Bitcoin not many of them go out, very few actually. And so we're only going up and to the right. And with the, you know, there's only so long that the septuagenarians and octogenarians in power can can prevent this technology and so from, from flourishing. And so I think we just have to be patient and keep up the hard work. I appreciate everybody listening. And I'll just quickly plug my, my Bitcoin magazine uh, article. If anybody wants to read, it's free to read. It's on decentralizing defection. It has to do with Soviet Union and intelligence and uh, how now Bitcoin offers anybody the opportunity to defect from an authoritarian regime, not just the elite. Love it. Yeah, when I came into Freedom Money, you know, it was through the lens of, of classical liberalism and technologies and disruption. So 
whatever's happening at the state level, the protocol remains the same. I'm not worried about that. We're just fighting for this. Not that we can get, you know, Bitcoin working in the system, but it's just so that everyone can have access. And sometimes it's very difficult. So I, I have to thank a lot of plebs that I've met back, bouncing back and forth between the U.S. and Europe. You know, there's a lot of regulatory battles in Europe as well that people are fighting. I'm able to learn a lot about that and carry those lessons over. There's some very interesting collaboration that could also happen there. The U.S. is not the world, as people are often told. And, you know, this is a borderless uh, currency that we're able to use. So happy to be here. Thanks so much, Bitcoin Magazine, Grant, BPI, Consumer Choice Center, where you do a lot of different consumer issues, but coin and the, the broader freedom money crypto space, always very interesting and important. And uh, for anyone interesting in that brand between the US and Europe, fixthemoney.net. Thanks so much. Thank you, everybody. Final thing, if you look at the pinned tweet here, um, BPI announced our Bitcoin Policy Summit, right? This is going to be a one-day conference in Washington, D.C., and it's going to be the first event of its kind that we've seen in D.C., right? There's been cryptocurrency, you know, events. There have been blockchain events, you know, policy events in D.C. There hasn't been a Bitcoin-only event, you know, at this scale with these types of people involved. So if you like the conversation that you heard today and, and you think that, you know, we should have Bitcoin-specific advocacy in D.C., you know, please consider supporting Bitcoin Policy Institute working with a BTC coalition we've partnered with on, you know, this event. And uh, yeah, they've been great partners to us. We both are, you know, Bitcoin only, Bitcoin focused organizations fighting the fight in DC. If you're interested in attending, you can go on our site and request an invitation. This is an invite only. Most people at this event, it's going to be different than almost any Bitcoin event that, you know, you've gone to because most people at this event are not going to be pro Bitcoin, right? These are going to be folks from the White House, from the Treasury, staffers, you know, from Republican offices and Democratic offices, people at other think tanks, et cetera. And a lot of them are going to be Bitcoin skeptics. A lot of them are going to be Bitcoin curious. So we're really, really excited for this event. We've been pushing on it uh, for a long time. If you're part of a company who might want to sponsor, please reach out. You can check that on the website. If you'd like to attend, again, please request an invitation. If you'd like to figure out any way to support, you know, our efforts, please please reach out. We're, you know, as we talked about in the space, we're kind of all in this together. So finally, thank you so much, Bitcoin Magazine. Really looking forward to Coin Miami, uh, you know, in May, which is a few weeks after our summit in DC. So I uh, hope to see some of you in DC. Hope to see a lot of you in Miami. Thank you so much, Chris, for hosting this. Sorry for going over time. Everybody who's on the space, y'all rock. And thank you to everybody who stuck around. No, thank you so much, Grant. Thanks to BPI and all the work that you guys do. I just want to thank all the speakers and all the listeners in the spaces today. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for your support. My fellow plebs, come celebrate Bitcoin winner in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. As 2023 begins, the broke issue stares head on into the looming realities of a broken economy, a more broke central bank, and considers how Bitcoiners can share their knowledge, 
their projects, and their mentalities to remain strong economic nodes throughout the winter. As a global Bitcoin news medium with a mission to accelerate hyper-Bitcoinization, Bitcoin Magazine is for all Bitcoiners, the curious, convicted, and the maximalists. Inside Bitcoin Magazine, you will find exclusive interviews and profiles with leading Bitcoiners, actionable insights on the state of the market, breaking news and cultural trends, and powerful photos and artwork from the best artists in the world. Each issue will be shipped safely in a secure box mailer to protect the integrity of each copy. Print magazines, not money. Buy Bitcoin Magazine.